Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today we get to hear a lecture by one of our own Beeson professors, Dr. Paul House. He teaches Old Testament theology and Hebrew here at Beeson. Uh, He's a leader in the field of biblical theology. He has served as the president of the Evangelical Theological Society and is very active in the Society of Biblical Literature. Uh, He holds a Ph.D. from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where I first met him when he was a student in my classes many years ago. Well, he's talking in this lecture, which was given, by the way, at a session of the Evangelical Theological Society. He's talking about a long conversation about people and place, God's friendship with Moses and Wendell Berry's essays. Some of you will recognize the name of Wendell Berry. He's a farmer. He's a poet. He's a kind of lay theologian, lives in Kentucky, uh, written a lot about uh, creation, the world, nature, and our responsibility within it, about place. Place is really important, and local place is very important to Wendell Berry. It's important to Paul House, too. And I think you'll be fascinated the way he brings Wendell Berry into conversation with what God uh, actually established as a friendship with his servant Moses. It's a wonderful lecture, uh, bringing together Old Testament theology, the theme of friendship, and the writing of Wendell Berry. Let's go to the Evangelical Theological Society and hear our friend and colleague, Dr. Paul House, a long conversation about people and place, Moses and Wendell Berry. Well, thank you for being here. I want to give you one resource before I forget it. It's nothing to do necessarily with my paper, but several of you are involved in uh, academic work in academic institutions, building friendships there. I think one of the uh, best novels I've ever read, particularly on this subject, we were written by Wallace Stegner, S-T-E-G-N-E-R, Wallace Stegner, Crossing to Safety. If you've not read Crossing to Safety, I think it would be a a really significant experience for you to do so, particularly those of us who are working uh, in academe and desiring long-term familial friendships of the type that Richard was describing in his paper and of the type that Abby was describing in hers. Wendell Berry has written in Sex, Economy, Freedom, and Community the following, Abstraction is the enemy, wherever it is found. Emphasis on wherever. Abstraction is the enemy, wherever it is found. Friends are not abstract principles. Friends have bodies that can be seen and touched, voices that can be heard or missed. They live in places that can be found and visited, enriched or impoverished. They write words sent and seen electronically, or better yet, sent, seen, and touched physically. Friends have families, jobs, and bills. They are therefore vested in one another through companionship, communion, covenant, and commitment. Friends are incarnated in the details of life. 
Friends may be strange and often are, but friends cannot be strangers. The Bible teaches these and other things about friends. Yet Scripture requires interpretation. And without proper vigilant interpretation follows good and bad societal trends. For at least two centuries, the chief centers of biblical interpretation, that is in Europe and North America, have experienced industrial technological revolution that has slowly depersonalized and disembodied much of daily life. Not every aspect of this revolution is malignant. Not even the malignant portions are unstoppable. Nonetheless, the slow erosion of physical human involvement in land, community, international communication, in churches has a price. In biblical interpretation, one such price is increased abstraction of what were originally very physical biblical concepts, such as church, salvation, stewardship, discipline, education, hope, love, and friendship. Pockets of resistance to abstraction exist. These provide biblical interpreters viable models and partners with which to work. Though a long list of such potential partners could be made, neo-agrarian writers are potentially one of the most fruitful. There are at least two reasons for this conclusion. First, they stress creative and enduring stewardship of mind, land, homes, relationships, education, churches, communities, all common biblical concerns, and they do so in diverse ways. Second, they do not consider relentless world urbanization and mechanization inevitable or inexorably positive. Rather, they have a revolutionary spirit that refuses to accept a depersonalizing culture as a given. Their spirit thus has much in common with the teachings of Moses, Isaiah, Amos, and Jesus. Many agrarian authors write about fruitful friendships in their essays, poems, and fiction. Many also provide lived examples of committed friendship. Wendell Berry is one agrarian writer who has provided material on friendship that is useful to those building a theology of friendship. This is not because he has published specific essays on the topic of the virtues and practices of friendship. Rather, it is true because of what he's written about his friends and their shared commitments in his essays and letters, because of his sensitive treatment of relationships in his poems, because of the examples of friendships found in his fiction, and because of the esteem his longtime friends have for him. This is also true because Barry takes the Bible and the teachings of Jesus Christ very seriously. He is a writer who is a Christian, though not what many people mean when they use the term Christian writer. This paper is part of an ongoing interdisciplinary and comparative project on window-bearing friendship with Ben Mitchell and Richard Bailey. Its job is to focus on how Barry's work aids an understanding of God's friendship with Moses and thus supports a practical theology of friendship. More specifically, using one of Barry's metaphors, it will argue that God's friendship with Moses entailed a long conversation about mutual involvement in teaching Israel love for God, love for neighbor, and love for land. So first, God and Moses' face-to-face friendship as conversation. The Old Testament calls two persons God's friend, Abraham and Moses. The Hebrew Scriptures mainly use two basic words translators often render as friend. 
The first can signify a companion of nearly any type. Depending on context, the word can designate a close companion or a confidant, thus a friend. The second can refer to a beloved one, ranging from a lover to a close, trusted companion. Proverbs 18.24 uses both terms, with the second one being the ideal, for it's the type of friend who sticks closer than a brother. The first word appears in Exodus 33.11 to describe Moses' relationship with God, while Isaiah 41.8 uses the second to depict Abraham's friendship with God. Isaiah 41.8 focuses on the covenant between Abraham and Yahweh, and this covenant's importance for Abraham's descendants. Exodus 33.11 describes the face-to-face conversational nature of Yahweh's relationship with Moses. Over a 40-year period, this ongoing conversation included the details of God's friendship with Moses, determined the shape of God's relationship with Israel, and affected Moses' relationship with Israel. Personal conversation is at the heart of Barry's is at the heart of friendship in Barry's writings. For example, he describes his relationship to his brother and longtime neighbor, John Barry, as our long conversation. He recalls his first visit with Hayden Carruth, poet from New England, as follows. I showed him around a little, and of course we talked. Our talk from the first words was that of friends between whom much does not need to be explained, but rather is assumed or taken for granted. Their shared commitments to place, people, and poetry were part of what they could assume. One could also argue that Barry's essays and speeches, which now span 50 years, are attempt to converse with readers and hearers about mutual concerns. To be more specific as to what he means by conversation, note the following positive comments Barry makes about Gary Snyder's book, The Real Work. Quote, It is conversation, that is, the book is conversation, of the genre of conversation, and has the limitations and virtues of that genre. That is, one sometimes wishes for a more studied elaboration. At the same time, the excitement of conversation is obviously turning up insights and connections that greater deliberation would reach more slowly, if at all. And it is conversation extraordinarily abundant, precise and generous, teaching of the best kind. Barry's emphasis on insights, connections, teaching, and assuming shared commitments fits the friendship between God and Moses very well, as we'll see. This is especially true as one recalls that the teachings God has Moses write for Israel are called Torah, instruction by and for a committed community. God and Moses' long conversation about people. God's first conversation with Moses revolves around Israel's need in light of harsh treatment by Egypt. Israel's prayers for release ascend to God, and he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Exodus 2. This covenant included the promise of a large family, protection from enemies, a special and blessed relationship with him, and a good land in which to live, according to Genesis 12, 1-9. These promises come as a response to the sin and resultant brokenness depicted in Genesis 3:11. Thus far, in the biblical story, that is to Exodus, the first promise has been kept of family, but the others await fulfillment. God calls Moses to lead Israel in order to change this situation. It takes a rather long and involved conversation that includes threats and much prodding for Moses to undertake the task, read Exodus 3 and 4. Nonetheless, Moses goes, armed with God's promises of protection and success, and with a new understanding of God's name, God's character. And according to Exodus 4.31, he goes to help the people. 
God and Moses worked together and with others to release enslaved Israel in Exodus 5 to 18. Moses speaks to Israel, to Pharaoh, his brother Aaron, his assistant Joshua, and of course God. God instructs Moses and through Moses instructs Pharaoh and Israel. God sends plagues and wonders that result in a free people by 1521. Yet as early as 1524, the conversation degenerates. The people grumble against Moses, which is akin to grumbling against God. For God and Moses do this work as a team. Not a team of equals, but a team nonetheless. Moses' conversations with God are often about the people's complaints. Read 17.4. And such is the case throughout the Pentateuch. In Exodus 19 to 24, this freed people learns that their purpose is to be a kingdom of priests declaring God's kingship to the world. This will happen as they live freed from idolatry, freed from materialism, false teaching, false witness, stealing, murder, adultery, and coveting. This will happen as they establish a just and equitable society. So the Ten Commandments and then on through Exodus 23. They commit to this freedom and its entailments in 24.1-8. Moses then ascends the mountain to receive more instruction in freedom and its responsibilities. So far, God and Moses' partnership has led to Israel's release from slavery and to the keeping of the covenant blessings promised Abraham. But Exodus 32-34 tells a different story, one in which God's conversation with Moses takes a new and crucial turn. Israel rejects both God and Moses by worshiping an idol in 32, 1 to 6. God states to Moses his desire to terminate the people and begin afresh with him. But like a true friend, more interested in his friend's reputation and what, than in what he can get for himself, Moses implores God to give the people another chance and to continue to be present among them in 32 and 3. In 33.17, God agrees, which leads Moses to ask to know more about God, the result of which is God's often quoted self-revelation found in 34.6 and 7. In the meantime, the text reveals that Moses spoke to God face to face as one does with a friend, 33.11. I think their friendship is the best way to understand this difficult intercessory passage. Only Moses could speak to God in this way. And God would only respond to Moses in this manner. Their relationship is special, as Jeremiah 15, 1 and 2 indicates, when God compares his beloved Jeremiah unfavorably to Moses and Samuel. Friendship and intercessory conversation are preeminent reasons Israel does not die. As the story continues... Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6 to 8 make explicit what is implicit in Exodus 20, which is that concrete, practical love fuels the people's relationship with God as surely as it does Moses' relationship with God. Love of local, ethnic neighbors and of sojourner neighbors is reflected by honest conversation and equal merciful treatment according to Leviticus 19, 17 to 37. Love of God that encompasses heart, soul, mind, and strength is shown through daily obedient activities that constitute proper use of, mem of memory, according to Deuteronomy 6, 1-9 and 7, 1-8, 20. 
Barry agrees that love, which he also calls affection, I think in the sense that Jonathan Edwards uses the word, is essential for healing a damaged world. Barry does not believe knowledge, in the sense of data, or institutions can reverse the problems humanity has caused creation. Indeed, he knows that governments, corporations, schools, and churches have become so centralized and consequently abstract that they cannot deliver solutions as they are. Therefore, local households and neighborhoods must provide character and culture, the ultimate solutions to a harmed world, and they can only do so through love. Barry writes, quote, Only love can bring intelligence out of the institutions and organizations where it aggrandizes itself into the presence of the work that must be done, unquote. This love must be particular and concrete, not abstract. Quote, love is never abstract. It does not adhere to the universe or the planet or the institution or the profession, but to the singular sparrows of the street, the lilies of the field, the least of these, my brethren. Love is not by its own desire heroic. It is heroic only when compelled to be. It exists by its willingness to be anonymous, humble, and unrewarded, unquote. His comments align with Exodus. When God began to free Israel, he began with a person, Moses, who became his friend. Their love for one another was an example to Israel of what their priestly nation could be. From small beginnings then, love did great things. Good institutions, educational ones and otherwise, can only spring from such love and personal concern, as Leviticus argues. This love is an expression of freedom that does good, practical work in the world. Commenting on the Gospels, Barry writes that true love for neighbors and for enemies, quote, is not just a feeling, but is indistinguishable from the willingness to help, to be useful to one another. The way of love is indistinguishable, moreover, from the way of freedom, unquote. This is because, quote, to be free of hatred, of enmity, of the endless and hopeless effort to oppose violence with violence would be to have life more abundantly, unquote. Thus, Barry describes the sort of non-abstract love of God and neighbor found in the Ten Commandments and in the Sermon on the Mount. Both passages command realistic and tough-minded freedom that will bind wounds. It is freedom from bondage and abstraction for the sake of others. The love Moses and God shared with one another for the sake of Israel unfolded for 40 years. The sort of love God shows for Israel and for the created world endures still. See John 3.16. Humanly speaking, aging love should be maturing love. Barry observes, quote, The older love becomes, the more clearly it understands its involvement in partiality, imperfection, suffering, and mortality. Even so, it longs for incarnation, unquote. Love longs to help others tangibly and to be helped by them. Moses showed this love for his friend and for his people through a long and sometimes torturous path lived in the desert heading to Canaan. This love was imperfect and it was stubborn, but it was not abstract. God and Moses' long conversation about land. 
The Bible's perspectives on people, land, and community cannot be separated except for the sake of analysis, if one wishes to interpret the text properly. The ongoing friendship between God and Moses reflected in the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy proved this point. Here one finds God conversing with Moses about how the people freed in Exodus are to live in a manner that will restore the world created in Genesis 1 and 2 and harmed in Genesis 3 to 11. The point of these books is not to explain how people become God's people, but rather how God's redeemed people live in a redemptive way. This redemptive way requires a right understanding of God's good gifts of land and community and how to use them. And understanding God's ongoing conversation with Moses provokes. Barry has written specifically on many of these passages in his 1979 essay, The Gift of Good Land. He mentions two purposes for writing this piece. To contribute to the ongoing conversation about ecological and agricultural responsibility. And to argue that, quote, Christianity, as usually presented by its organizations, is not earthly enough that a valid spiritual life in this world must have a practice and a practicality. It must have a material result, unquote. Certain texts in the Pentateuch are particularly important to his argument. I would, I would say, too, we could add the Sermon on the Mount and at least half of every epistle Paul ever wrote. First, he notes that some scholars have read Genesis 1, 26-31 as humans having the freedom to use the earth however they wish. Such interpreters consider, quote, rule, unquote, and, quote, subdue, unquote, to include the right to destroy with impunity. Barry rightly observes that Genesis 2.15 indicates that caring for the earth in order to live well upon it is the more likely meaning of Genesis 1.26 to 31. I think given the Pentateuch's teachings as a whole, Barry's interpretation is almost certainly correct. Second, he notes that Deuteronomy 8.17 and 10.14 <coughs> Underscore the importance of understanding that, quote, the promised land is a divine gift to a fallen people, unquote. Fallen people must understand they did not create the world. God did. Therefore, they must not think they possess the land because of their might or wisdom. See Deuteronomy 8:17. Fallen people must realize they do not merit the land and are not allowed to pursue some form of manifest destiny. Barry could add that Leviticus 18.1-5 reveals that the gift of land is in part due to others forfeiting the land by sinning against God, neighbors, and the land. Read the critique of the Canaanites in any of those passages. Third, he observes that according to Leviticus 25.23, the promised land may not be sold as if it's the permanent possession of an individual or a people. God is permanent, but human beings are sojourners on the earth. This verse is part of Leviticus' teaching on Sabbath and Jubilee, texts that emphasize that God's rules for conducting agricultural and economic activity are not like the average human beings. These texts reflect, quote, not ownership, but a sort of tenancy, the right of habitation and use, unquote. A landowner is thus a steward and guest on God's property. They also remind Israel, quote, the land is theirs only by gift. It exists in its own right and does not begin with any human purpose, unquote. One can easily add that these texts also demonstrate the people's need to trust God, the one who created, sustained, and loves them in the land. In this case, faith has a very specific and physical expression. Those who believe God trustworthy 
observe the Sabbath and Jubilee years. Grasping these concepts leads to specific actions such as humility that recognizes divine ownership of land. See Deuteronomy 18. It recognizes neighborly behavior that respects the dead for their past work and treats the land as the inheritance of the unborn. And good husbandry, Deuteronomy 22, 6-7, that refuses to destroy the source of the land's fertility. This understanding will thereby result in active love for neighbor and for creation that will show love for God. This love must transcend one's personal goals and purposes. As Barry writes, quote, It is not allowable to love the creation according to purposes one has for it any more than it is allowable to love one's neighbor in order to borrow his tools. Purely utilitarian purposes make people and land abstractions, in short, creations of human minds, not God's creations. Of course, these specific actions must be carried out in various changing situations. One cannot anticipate every conceivable circumstance in which one may need these teachings. Nonetheless, as Barry argues, one can ask some basic questions. Here's a list of them. For instance, is there any such thing as a Christian strip mine? Is there anything, is there any such thing as a nuclear, Christian nuclear waste dump or profligate consumer economy? Is a Christian to profit from violence and unjust war or more positively for many of us? Is there a way to construct Christian views of land holding, technology, and architecture? Barry answers yes. He believes it is possible to show real Christian love through, quote, the study of agriculture, soil husbandry, engineering, architecture, mining, manufacturing, transportation, the making of monuments of pictures, songs, and stories, unquote. Such study is needed because Christians must give what he calls workable answers to those whose, quote, idea of a Christian economy is no more or less than the industrial economy, which is an economy firmly founded on the seven deadly sins and the breaking of all the Ten Commandments, unquote. A Christian economy will, quote, determine what tools and methods are appropriate to specific people, places, and needs and to apply them correctly, for no two jobs are alike, unquote. Love for God, neighbor, and the land should engender a useful and active imagining and carrying out of new ideas. Interest in solving earthly problems is not the same as loving the world more than God, which the Bible rightly warns against. Rather, it's the refusal to separate the spiritual and the physical. Rightly understood, the spiritual and the physical are one. I must comment... I certainly hope so. I'm counting on the resurrection. When separated, either or both becomes an abstraction. And as Barry warns, quote, the devil's work is abstraction. Not the love of material things, but the love of their quantities. Which, of course, is why David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people in 2 Samuel 24.10, end quote. In short, to bring the discussion full circle... Such love constitutes more than neighborliness, as significant as that is. It amounts to friendship with people and land. The sort of love and neighborliness one shows to a close, beloved companion, or as we've already said today, someone you bestow the benefits of family 
without the necessity or bond of blood. One who loves a neighbor does not defile that neighbor's land, use violence against that neighbor to gain money, or sell out that neighbor's good name for wages, small or great. One certainly does not do these things to a friend. God's friendship with Moses was no abstraction. It was as real as God pressing Moses into service, as real as Israel's slavery, as real as Pharaoh's stubbornness, as real as the Exodus, as real as the Ten Commandments, as real as the teaching God gave Israel through his friend Moses, and as real as the physical promised land. Their friendship was enjoyable and useful to them, yet it served the greater good of others. Rooted in maturing love, their long conversation about people, land, community, and many other topics certainly produce results. These effects continue today when people honor their friendship by imitating it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.